It's the morning of August 11th, 2020. With days to go before the Democratic National Convention, Joe Biden sits down at his desk to make a crucial phone call. Hi, 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 sorry to keep you. That's all right. All summer, Biden has been wrestling with a major decision. Now, finally, he made up his mind. You ready to go to work? On the other end of the line was Senator Kamala Harris. Oh my God, I'm so ready to go to work. NBC News has confirmed that Biden has picked California Senator Kamala Harris to be his running mate. She had gone from district attorney to California attorney general to senator to presidential candidate to also ran. 90 minutes after that phone call with Joe Biden, she would be introduced for the first time to the country as candidate for vice president. But who is... Kamala Harris. Here's this California girl, um, absolutely beautiful, stunning, uh, tenacious. She's somebody who didn't look like her predecessors. And really, that's been the story for her career. I mean, she's somebody who's kind of been the first in almost every job she's had. And she, she like, pushes me in the chest, you know, kiddingly. And she says, you better get on board. <laughs> and I said, well, who are you? This week's podcast is sponsored by The Economist. We've just hit on their election hub. It's an unexpected goldmine of content that digs into what this election result really means and how it will shape the future of, yes, the U.S., but also the world. It's home to The Economist's latest analysis and fair-minded opinion. Go to economist.com slash Kamala to listen to their Checks and Balance podcast and dive into the data that shaped this election. Head to the Economist U.S. 2020 Election Hub now at economist.com slash Kamala. From MSNBC and Wondery, I'm Joy Reid. This is Kamala, next in line. heard of Kamala Harris when President Obama got into a bit of hot water for commending her on her looks. The president did speak with uh, Attorney General Harris uh, last night after he came back from his trip and he called her uh, to apologize uh, for the distraction created by his comments. He apologized, but I googled. Back then she was just the Attorney General of California, a brilliant, charismatic black politician, someone to watch. Fast forward to today, and Senator Harris is a nominee to be the first black and first Asian American woman vice president of the United States, and maybe a future president. But how did she get here? This is a six-part series on the making of Kamala Harris, and how she went from Oakland to Washington, D.C. This is episode one, Fajita Gate. Before she was a vice presidential candidate, before she was a senator, or a state attorney general, or even district attorney, Kamala Harris was a city attorney working in San Francisco, getting ready to run for office. I don't think it's far off to say that her first campaign set the stage for who she was as a politician. That's NBC reporter Deepa Shivram, who has been covering Kamala Harris on the campaign trail. 
she didn't care about labels. She didn't want to be branded as conservative or moderate or progressive. She didn't want to deal with any of that when she ran that first race in 2003. Kamala Harris ran for district attorney with the message of getting things done. And in San Francisco, getting things done sometimes meant learning how to fight. The city may only be seven square miles, but it can contain a world of trouble. And back in 2002, when Kamala Harris launched her first campaign for office, the city was in an uproar, all because of a box of fajitas. It was around 2 a.m. in November in 2002, and Adam Snyder was just finishing up his shift at the Blue Light Bar in San Francisco. It was Taco Tuesday, and Adam had set aside some food to take home with him that night. Steak fajitas. Toward the end of the night, a friend, Jade Santoro, came in, and after Adam had locked up the bar, they began walking back to Adam's car. On the way, they passed three men outside a bar called the Bus Stop Saloon. One of the men saw Adam's box of food. And he said, hey, give me your fajita. I want one of your fajitas. Gary Delanus was a San Francisco police officer at the time. Jade stepped in and told the man to leave his friend alone. And things escalated. There was a fist fight. More of a beating. Jade had a broken nose and concussion. The fajitas ended up in the trash. The police were called and the three men were detained. And that might have been it. Except that when the cops questioned those three men, the ones who had started it... They found out that these guys were cops, and then at the next minute they found out that one of the cops was Alex Fagan's son. Matthew Tonsing, David Lee, and Alex Fagan Jr. were all off-duty San Francisco police officers. In fact, they had been on their way back from a party to celebrate Alex's dad, who had just been made assistant chief of police. And right from the very start, the way these three cops were treated raised questions. The allegations were that uh, it was covered up. Accusations that the San Francisco Police Department command staff blatantly interfered with the investigation of the off-duty officer involved street brawl by failing to release phone records, conducting written interviews instead of verbal, and denying that the officers were drunk the night of the fight. Did they cover it up? Uh, you know, I don't know if it was a cover-up. I'm sure they tried to cover their ass. But in 2002, Gary Delanus had a problem, and his name was Terrence Hallinan. Oh, yeah. Terrence Hallinan and I hated each other. Uh, I had no use for Terrence Hallinan. Hallinan had been DA since 1995, but he'd been a fixture in San Francisco politics for decades. His white head of hair and weathered face were a familiar sight at demonstrations and left-wing political gatherings. Terrence Hallinan had a complicated relationship with a lot of factions of law enforcement within San Francisco. Safe to say he burned a lot of bridges. Um, he was known to be really aggressive. He was a fighter. He was, uh, you know, hard-edged. His nickname was KO, as in knockout. Still, when he became district attorney, many in the city's police department felt he was too soft on crime. And so, you know, the cops were constantly griping about the fact that, you know, he wouldn't prosecute the cases. He was kicking too many cases. He was giving too many people probation when they should have been getting prison. 
and so on and so on. And, it's, and that's sort of the, the ongoing conversation between cops and district attorneys anyhow. But Terrence Hallinan took it to a new low. In fact, Hallinan described himself as the most progressive district attorney in the United States. Gary said he had several run-ins with K.O. Uh, it would go something like, you know, you don't like me, do you? And I'd say, I don't have anything against you. I just think you're a terrible prosecutor. You never should have been a prosecutor. You don't belong there. We're going to do everything we can to get rid of you. But Fajita Gate would push the relationship between the DA and police to the breaking point. When allegations of a police cover-up over Fajita Gate reached Hallinan, he directed investigators to spend hours looking into it. The resulting investigation went to hundreds of pages making it one of the largest investigations into an assault in the city's history. They had a grand jury, and uh, what happened was the three cops were indicted. In the end, Hallinan recommended that they charge the three officers involved in the beating. And as for the conspiracy by the top officials in the department, prosecutors took the unusual step of simply reading the definition of conspiracy to obstruct justice and leaving the decision in the hands of the jury. And they came back and indicted the entire top brass of the department. Helen Ann had his big day in the sun. He indicted the command staff of the San Francisco Police Department. In a show of unity, all 10 police personnel indicted on criminal charges marched together to the Hall of Justice today for their first day in court. Chief of Police Earl Sanders, seven members of his command staff, and the three officers all pled not guilty. Their attorneys later spoke for them, expressing outrage over the case. It is absolutely ridiculous that the command staff of the San Francisco Police Department have to be removed in this time of war with Iraq and terrorism over this bunch of garbage. It is really sad. But very quickly, the criminal case fell apart. The charges against the command staff were dropped, and in the end, the three officers involved in the brawl would be acquitted, too. The whole thing was expensive and politically embarrassing. And so, you know, while this whole Fajita Gate thing is happening, everyone's got their eyes on the DA office. It's this scandal that just does not end because it just keeps happening. Everyone is extremely unhappy with Terrence Hallinan. Fajita Gate wasn't the reason so many turned against Terrence Hallinan. Though for a lot of people, it was symptomatic of a wider problem in the district attorney's office. And this is, you know, not the only scandal that was going on in Terrence Hallinan's DA office. There were other big moments as well where a lot of people were looking at the way he was running things and just like, are you even, are you doing your job? Like, are you running this place at all? There weren't just tensions between police and the DA's office, but within the office itself. Kamala Harris had worked under Hallinan, but left to work in the city attorney's office, where Susie Loftus was an intern. And the lawyer that I was working with had an office right next to her, and she just struck me as someone very grounded, very smart, uh, accessible, and, you know, someone who definitely was going somewhere. When the next election for district attorney came up, the controversy drove an anyone-but-Hallinan campaign. Find someone, anyone, to run against him. I don't think she was declared candidate, but there was always an air of um, inevitability that she was going to be a leader in San Francisco. And amid the chaos of Fajita Gate, Kamala Harris entered the race. A few months later, Gary was at a party thrown by a man named Gibbs Brown. A San Francisco wannabe venture capitalist kind of guy. It was a condo complex across the street 
from the Fairmont Hotel. He would invite everybody, you know, the police union, the fire union, the politicians. Because aside from being an officer in the narcotics department, Gary Delanus was also vice president of the police union. I was sort of the guy. Everybody knew I was the guy that worked the political stuff. So there he was at this party when across the room he saw a woman walking towards him. And I, I hadn't met her before. And when I saw her, I was like, wow, uh, that is a really attractive woman. She walked right up to him. And she, she like, pushes me in the chest, you know, kiddingly. And she says, you better get on board. <laughs> and I said, well, who are you? And she said, I'm Kamala Harris. You know who I am. Gary did know who she was, although they'd never met. He knew that until recently, Kamala Harris had worked in the DA's office. Hal and Ann had been her boss. Now she was running to replace him. Gary had done a little background research. He'd called up some people in the Oakland Police Department. They said, hey, she was good. She was tough. She was a prosecutor. And in San Francisco. And including the people in our own DA's office um, that, we, that we still spoke to that would tell us on the QT what kind of a prosecutor she was. Her reputation was that she was a, an effective prosecutor. That, that she, you know, she got it. She understood what the role of the prosecutor was. The problem was the union had already decided to back a candidate in the race. Level-headed San Francisco native. Named Bill Fazio. And I go, well, I know you're running for DA, but we're going to endorse Bill Fazio. You know that. And she said, well, you're making a big mistake. I'm going to win, and you better get on board with me. I said something to the effect of, hey, look, we're endorsing Fazio, but, you know, if, if, if you get into a runoff with Terrence, we'll endorse you. That was my first meeting with Kamala Harris. Gary had heard from colleagues that Kamala was a good prosecutor, but everyone knew Kamala Harris was going to lose. Here's the thing about home security companies. Most trap you with high prices, tricky contracts, and lousy customer support. So while there's a lot of options out there, there's only one no-brainer. Simply Safe. Simply Safe's got everything you need to protect your home. It's got an arsenal of sensors and cameras to blanket every room, window, and door. Professional monitoring keeps watch day and night, ready to send police, fire, or medical professionals if there's an emergency. Plus, you can set it up yourself in under an hour. I know. Once you do, there's no contract, no sales guy, no hidden fees, and no fine print. Sasha, who's on the team here at Wondery, loved that she and her husband were able to set up everything themselves, so that means no extra people in the house. <laughs> she also said that they're looking to move to a bigger place soon, and it's reassuring to know they can take their system with them and add to it to accommodate their new space. Head to simplysafe.com slash Kamala and get a free HD camera for listeners of our show. That's simplysafe.com slash Kamala, K-A-M-A-L-A, to make sure they know that our show sent you. It's not easy to prioritize yourself when there's a lot on your plate, but investing in your mental health has long-term benefits. And with Talkspace, it can actually be affordable. Unlike in-person therapy sessions, Talkspace gives you 24-7 access to your online therapy room. Send unlimited messages to your dedicated therapist, and they'll respond daily, five days a week. Best of all, an entire month on Talkspace costs about the same amount as a single in-person session. Talkspace is secure and private using the latest encryption technology to store client information. And now, Talkspace covers 40 million people for online therapy through their insurance or employer. The bottom line is that we all need someone to talk to. Talkspace wants to give us the support we deserve at a price we can afford. As a listener of this podcast, you get $100 off your first month on Talkspace. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com or download the app. 
Make sure to use the code Kamala to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's code Kamala, K-A-M-A-L-A at Talkspace.com. Around the same time Gary Delanus met Kamala Harris, Rebecca Prozen got a phone call. And, um, you know, the call that changed my life, Senator Harris called and was like, look, I'm looking for a campaign manager. Um, are you interested? She didn't know Kamala well, but she knew her reputation and that she'd recently announced her run for district attorney. San Francisco political scene is literally like high school. Rebecca had recently chaired a local election campaign and had worked in Willie Brown's office for five years. She hadn't been looking to run another campaign, but she agreed to come in and meet with Kamala and her political consultant. But it was like a redone basement office, um, so it was an open, like there was maybe three desks in there, and then we were like in the sitting, there was like a little sitting area. Kamala was there, along with Jim Stearns, the consultant. I don't feel like I had to sell myself as much as they had to sell it to me, because I think they knew, they knew that they needed a day-to-day campaign manager to like tie all the pieces together. Rebecca listened. We sat in Jim Stern's office and they were explaining how Senator Harris was going to win. She could see the campaign had a lot going for it. She was running against an entrenched incumbent who was extremely well known in both San Francisco political circles and was a progressive district attorney and had wasn't the best manager and had some pretty good missteps and everybody thought that he was very vulnerable on the other hand the other candidate in the race bill fazio had already run against hallinan twice before he had more money and more name recognition than kamala did but fazio was sort of seen as too far to the right for san francisco now that would mean you know in anywhere else he would be seen as a as a fairly progressive prosecutor not a full progressive prosecutor but people thought kamala was fierce like They knew she was serious. They knew she was a talented trial attorney. But people questioned whether or not she could actually get it over the finish line. Was this right time, right place? Then they shared the current polling numbers. And so we sit down in the office and she's like, I'm at 6%. And I was like, well, what the f*** am I supposed to do with that? The election was just two months away. Rebecca was shocked. What's the plan? Do you have phone banks? Do you have a field operation? Do you have, you know, what's the ma- what's the mail strategy? Kamala looked at her. She was like, just get me in the runoff, Rebecca. I know I can win if you get me in the runoff. And something about her confidence was impressive. Besides, Rebecca thought, it's a win-win situation. I was like, I mean, I can't lose, right? So she loses, and I'm like, she was at 6%, and she wins, and the city's going to be a lot better off because of the talent and the leadership that she brings to the table because we needed sensible prosecution at the time. Rebecca left Jim Stern's office convinced. She'd take the position. She liked Kamala, and she could see she was a talented candidate. Honestly, at the time, I did not see that she was going to be an attorney general, a senator, a vice presidential nominee. Did I think she had the talent and the chops to be all those things? Absolutely. But at that point, she hadn't been elected to anything yet. First, they would have to get to the runoff of this local city election. And even that seemed like a long shot. A 
week later, Rebecca was standing in the Bayview neighborhood of San Francisco. 3800 3rd Street, the Bayview, right by the post office on Evans. There was construction work on the new light rail all around, so the streets were filled with dust. Rebecca had hustled to get everything set up in less than a week. Some things had to be improvised. There was no stage. There was no money to make a stage. And so I I actually took my coffee table and took it to the campaign because it was like a crappy coffee table that was from my dad's medical office. Um, so sort of like high enough, but not too high. And um, they all stood on it. It was a start. Soon, the headquarters were buzzing with volunteers coming through to pick up campaign flyers. One flyer in particular stood out. It had a photo of Kamala on one side, and on the other, a photo of all the previous DAs. And so on the one side of the mailer, it was all white males. And you turn it over, and it was, you know, San Francisco has a possibility of changing the landscape, so to speak. As Rebecca worked to get Kamala into the runoffs, one question began to surface. Kamala's relationship with the mayor. Willie Brown was an extremely popular mayor um, with a very vocal minority of people who disliked him or thought that he was crooked. Kamala and Willie Brown had dated back in the mid-90s. Their relationship was over by the time she decided to run for district attorney. But the two still had a close political relationship. So he was still very much a proponent of Kamala Harris and very much a backer of her career. Gary says, in fact, Willie Brown would call him up. So he wanted us to endorse her uh, rather than Fazio, but our ties with Bill Fazio had run too deep. The idea that Kamala had gotten a helping hand by once dating the older Willie Brown became a line of attack for her political opponents. Did it come up? Yes. Did we attack it head on? Yes. Did I think it was unfair? Yes. No one likes to be judged by who they're dating. Unfair or not, it came up at a campaign event in the city's Noe Valley neighborhood. Callahan was there. Fazio was there. Kamala was there. Rebecca wasn't. This is where I have to tell you my philosophy on debates. Very few people actually show up to a debate that are undecided. So Kamala and I would fight about this the entire race where she would go to these debates and it would be a big thing and she would tell me like I had nobody there and Terrence had you know 50 people there and Bill Fazio had 75 people there and I was like that is amazing you know what I did I had 30 people phone banking for you for weeks as the race had tightened they had prepared for negative attacks from her opponents and one question in particular at the Noe Valley event someone in the audience got up and asked Kamala how she would act independently of the mayor Kamala walked over to Hallinan and told the audience that he had attacked Bill Fazio for getting caught at a massage parlor. Then she walked over to Fazio and pointed out that he had attacked Hallinan over a scandal in which two of his employees had been caught having sex in his office. Then she delivered the punchline. I want to make a commitment to you that my campaign is not going to be about negative attacks. Bill Fazio was a nice guy and a smart guy, but... He wasn't one of these guys that's going to light up a room, if you know what I mean. And Helen Ann was just a boob. So, I mean, Helen Ann never had any communication skills. So she kicked her ass in the debates, and that's what got her there, into the runoff. On election night 2003, the results came in. They were close, but Rebecca had done what Kamala had asked. 
She was three to the runoff. Can I ask, is she someone who would have wanted to celebrate getting to the runoff? Like, was there, like, a little bit of a party, or was it kind of just like, oh, no, we're digging deeper, like, it's not over till it's over? Oh, no, there was a party. <laughs> there was a party. Bill Fazio, the candidate Gary and the police officers union had backed, was out. Still, Gary says Kamala seemed like a good second choice. We called her in and we said, okay, you're our, you're our candidate. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Good morning and welcome to this morning's forum program. The race for San Francisco District Attorney is down to two candidates, the incumbent Terrence Hallinan and challenger Kamala Harris. We'll hear from both of them. The final few weeks of the election campaign were intense. But with just two candidates in the race, it was easier to draw a contrast between incumbent and challenger. Everyone just had to fall in line. You've also charged in your campaign uh, that there's a backlog of murder cases, and you've put the number at about 50 awaiting trial, and uh, Jim Hammer from the DA's office said uh, it's closer to 40, and they are relentlessly trying to clear their backlog. Let's get you on record on this. Sure. Uh, as you know, Mike Hennessy, uh, who is the sheriff of San Francisco, endorsed me recently. And one of the reasons he endorsed me, as he stated, is because we have an absolute backlog of cases sitting waiting trial defendants who some are waiting and have been sitting in the county jail for four or more years awaiting trial. And it is because of the district attorney's inability or incapacity to prosecute those cases that we see them just languishing. You know, each one represents a life, Michael. On the night of the election, Kamala and her team gathered to wait for the results. And I think it was like the first or second round of numbers where we felt pretty confident that she, it was looking really good. It might have been around 9, 9.15-ish. Um, and I called and said, we just got another round of numbers. And again, this wasn't the time where people had smartphones where you could hit refresh every second. Um, and I was like, you won. 38-year-old Kamala Harris came out of nowhere and was swept into office as San Francisco's district attorney. And as she did, she made history. She was the first woman ever to be the city's top prosecutor. From 6% in the polls, she had unseated a man who described himself as the most progressive district attorney in the country. She was virtually unknown when she entered the race earlier this year. Gary Delanus was happy and optimistic. He remembers talking with her soon afterward. And it was just the, you know, hey, look, looking forward to working with you. And, uh, you know, I, I hope I hope you're a mark improvement over Terrence Allen And, you know, let's get to work. Kamala Harris was the 27th district attorney of San Francisco and the first who wasn't a white man. The good mood lasted for exactly four months. Coming up on Kamala, next in line, she said, well, don't you think that's a problem? And don't you think we should... When Kamala walked out of that church, you could see that she was hot. She was pissed off, man. I noticed that she had an ability to spar with the guys in particular. We're all huddled around, clicking refresh, trying to will votes to come in. She'd say to me all the time, Kamala, you may be the first to do many things. Make sure you're not the last. Oh, yeah, by the way, we consider her to be dangerous. We need someone to run against her. MSNBC and Wondery, this is episode one of six of Kamala Next in Line. This is a six-part series about the making of Kamala Harris. 
If you want to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free. Associate producers are Chris Siegel and Allison Bailey. Production and research help from Carrie Dan and Julie Serkin. Production assistance from Hank Butler. Music supervisor, Scott Velasquez. Managing producer, Lata Pandya. Executive produced for MSNBC by Steve. Um, I got, you know, special ribbons for my hair. I was just excited to go to school. And I really enjoyed being on the bus because I was able to talk with my friends on the way to school. Carol was in first grade. Her school was all the way across town. It was a yellow school bus with a little green duck on it, so we could remember which bus to get on. On this particular day, she'll catch her bus and make a friend. I met Kamala in the bus line. Kamala Harris lived with her mom around the corner from Carol. Her mom's name was Shamala. Shamala was, uh, she was a working single mother who was very involved and engaged in her kids' life and also with her kids' friends. I mean, she was a very warm, nice person, but she was also very strict and structured when she needed to be, and she didn't take any business from anybody, and she was um, she was a force to be reckoned with. From then on, Kamala and Carol took the bus together, and we took the bus to school from 1970 to 1973 to Thousand Oaks School, which was about 40 minutes from our house, was part of the Berkeley desegregation, school desegregation program. The Berkeley desegregation program was designed to integrate schools in the area. A two-way busing program that took black students to predominantly white schools and white students to predominantly black schools. And as you took the bus, you could definitely see the change in the neighborhood. You see a lot, a lot larger homes, a lot more lush and green yards, and just just a, a very upscale uh, environment, which I thought was really, I was like, oh, this is really cool. And I, I liked, you know, their library was on a quiet street. The library that we went to in West Berkeley was on a busy street. It was on University Avenue. Um, so there were definitely differences that I saw. When we got there, the, the school was very clean and nice. The biggest thing I would say I noticed is when I went for playdates at my friends' homes, because they were mostly in the Berkeley Hills, and they were very large homes, um, very different than the homes that Kamala and I grew up in. For Carol and Kamala, it wasn't just a bus ride. It was a trip to another world, and a ride she didn't forget. You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. This week's podcast is sponsored by The Economist. We've just hit on their election hub. It's an unexpected goldmine of content that digs into what this election result really means and how it will shape the future of, yes, the U.S., but also the world. It's home to The Economist's latest analysis and fair-minded opinion. Go to economist.com slash Kamala to listen to their Checks and Balance podcast and dive into the data that shaped this election. Head to the Economist U.S. 2020 Election Hub now at economist.com slash Kamala. From MSNBC and 
Wondery, I'm Joy Reid, and this is Kamala, next in line. This is episode two of six, The Education of Kamala Harris. I first interviewed Kamala Harris in Iowa back when she was campaigning for president. Senator Kamala Harris. Joyry. Thank you for being here in this beautiful capital. Yeah, it is gorgeous. Behind the scenes, she was self-deprecating, kind, and very, very normal. That's my big fancy takeaway. Kamala Harris is a normal person, someone you might know in the neighborhood or in college or in the Lynx organization. But before she was vice presidential candidate or senator or attorney general or even district attorney, she was simply Kamala. Pronounce your name. Kamala. So just think of like the punctuation mark, a comma, and that add a law. And there you go. <laughs> this is Kamala herself speaking with Jonathan Capehart at an event hosted by the Politics and Prose Bookstore in 2019. So then what does Kamala mean then? So it's a very traditional, classic Indian name, um, and it, it derives from Sanskrit, and it's, it means the lotus flower. And so, and it's, it's very prevalent in a lot of Asian cultures, and the idea, the symbolism is that the lotus flower sits on water, um, but it never really gets wet. Um, the water beads off of it. And so the idea being that one can be in the midst of chaos or be in the midst of something happening and, and be there and should be there. And it doesn't necessarily need to penetrate you, but one should be there. And, and, and equally important, um, its roots are in the mud, meaning it is grounded. And, and, and one must always know where they come from and, and can still be this thing. Now I need you to pronounce another name for me. Okay. Now, for the life of me, I just, I, I couldn't do it. Uh-huh. And that is the name of your mother. Shamala. Shamala. In speech after speech on the campaign trail, Kamala Harris talks about the lessons she learned from her mom. She was all five feet tall. But if you ever met our mother, you would have thought she was ten feet tall. She'd say, don't you ever let anyone tell you who you are. You tell them who you are. She said, your life should be judged based on service to others, not self-interest. And my mother, she was tough. If you ever came home in our house, if you ever came home complaining about something, our mother would look at you with a straight face, one hand probably on a hip, and she'd say, well, what are you going to do about it? There's so many quotes that she you know, brings back and, and, and quotes from her mom. That's NBC reporter Deepa Shivram. The one that I think comes up the most often is, you know, Kamala, you may be the first to do many things, but make sure you're not the last. And from the way Kamala Harris talks about her mom, which is which is often and with so much love and respect, um, she had, so the way she describes it is that her mom had two goals in her life, to raise her two daughters and to cure breast cancer. Look, I can speak for hours of Shamla now. That's Gopalan Balanchandran, Shamala's brother. She was a pioneer. When she was a single girl of 19 years old, she went on her own to state, on her own merit. She applied for, got admission and fellowship, everything on her own. She only told my father after she got admitted. Okay? Two, at that time there are not many Indians living in the Bay Area. And certainly no single girl of Indian unmarried girl. 
So she did a lot of things which nobody else had done at that time. Uh, let me not, I would say nobody else. Very few had done at that time. Um, it is still a lot of, of barrier breaking to do. Shamala Harris arrived in the U.S. to study science. And it was on the University of California, Berkeley campus that Shamala met Donald Harris. Oh, yeah. My my parents met Marchman and Shaun in the Civil Rights Movement. That was like straight from her stop speech. Kamala Harris's dad uh, was speaking at kind of like a student-organized event um, about civil rights, uh, about uh, a lot of, you know, the social movements that were going on in the U.S. at the time. And Kamala Harris's mom, Shamala, attended, and she went up uh, to Donald Harris, and uh, they started talking. And they met. Kamala was born two years later, and her sister Maya two years after that. And even as children, and Maya can attest to this, you could sit at the dinner table among all of these people having this conversation. And as a child, you could dare to state an opinion, but you were expected to defend that opinion, no matter how old you were. Here she is in conversation with Jeffrey Brandt. And um, so it, it certainly was a perfect training ground for the, the profession that I've chosen, but it also um, it was a very passionate, the, the environment was very passionate. And she'll tell stories of, you know, being pushed around in a stroller uh, while her parents were attending protests. She tells a funny story that, you know, at one point she was kind of fussing in her stroller and her mom looked down and was just like, Kamala, what do you want? And she was like, freedom! <laughs> Kamala's parents were divorced by the time she was eight. She, her mom, and her sister moved around for her mom's work. In 1982, Kamala went away to college. It was an experience that would profoundly shape her life and career. I think it is impossible, it is impossible to separate Kamala Harris from her experience at Howard. Uh, I think, I, I mean, she she talks about it so much, you, you know the impact that it had on her life. And even just now, I mean, she's running for vice president, right? Her campaign offices are literally like next to Howard Howard's campus. Howard University, the historically black college campus with sprawling lawns and brick buildings, was on the other side of the country from her hometown of Oakland. In her memoir, Kamala remembers her first days on campus. I'll always remember walking into Crampton Auditorium for my freshman orientation. The room was packed. I stood in the back, looking around and thought, this is heaven. There were hundreds of people and everyone looked like me. It was at Howard that Kamala joined Alpha Kappa Alpha, the oldest black sorority in the country, one of the divine nine. It was at Howard that Kamala took part in protests against U.S. investment in apartheid South Africa. She interned in the same Senate office she would one day hold. And it was also at Howard that Kamala would meet Jill Lewis and Shelley Young Tompkins. I kind of called it this incubator, a place where you could build your confidence. So I know some some African Americans. I've I've heard them say they you know came from schools maybe where it was. Um, they were the minority and then they come to Howard and, you know, it helps them to have a sense of identity. The thought that these were all people who were about doing something with their lives and, and being the fullest person that they could be. And we were out having an amazing time at a party and no one had to argue over what the music was going to be because we all agreed what was a jam at that time. It was phenomenal. 
It was a lot of fun and a good place for anyone interested in politics. Shelley Tompkins hadn't been on campus very long at all before she got involved in her first electoral campaign. It wasn't just a matter of putting up posters, you know, um, vote for me, but it was about connecting with people one-on-one, you know, asking them what their concerns are, telling them we were interested in running for office. Shelley saw an opportunity to run for freshman class representative and went for it. I had been um, a part of student government in high school. And so it just made sense. It was just, I felt uh, a part of the duty and responsibility. I've always had a calling for using my uh, voice to help other people. Kamala had the same calling. Here's this California girl, um, absolutely beautiful, stunning, uh, tenacious. And we were just like two ladies who thought we could change the world starting with the freshman class. I ran for my first elected office, freshman class representative of the Liberal Arts Student Council. It was my very first campaign, and no opponent I faced since was as tough as Jersey girl Shelly Young. Hey, we were freshmen, but we felt like this was the most important job (laughs) that we had outside of, um, you know, our schoolwork. Shelly campaigned hard knocking on dorm room doors, talking to students. There were two on-campus uh, dorms, for one for all-male and, and one all-female. And uh, so we were able to, you know, go and um, have conversation and really get a sense for what concerns people had and what things they wanted to see. And Kamala did the same. Even though they were competing with each other for two freshman representative spots, Shelly liked Kamala. Kamala has an infectious um, smile and laughter and just a great disposition. And so it was certainly very easy to um, become her friend. She was absolutely a a pleasant person, a fun person, but at the same time, someone who was, um, who, you know, who had goals in mind and who, um, felt that they had a purpose, even if it was just to be the best student representative. Finally, it came down to the votes. I can't say that I had a sense of a guarantee that I would win or she would win. What I knew, though, is that we were both giving it our all. There were two elected positions up for grabs. In the end, Kamala and Shelley both won. Her statement, as I said, was I was her toughest competitor, Jersey girl Shelly. You know, iron sharpens iron. We helped each other to bring out the best in one another. Um, She was very determined to be freshman class representative, and so was I. Whenever she sees kids on the rope line or, you know, on the hill or on the campaign trail, like she'll find them or you know they'll come up to her and the advice she always gives is you never have to ask anyone permission to lead you just lead i have heard her say that so many times so many times always see young people she'll say chin up shoulders back you never have to ask permission to lead Just weeks ago, after a long challenging process presidential candidate joe biden finally chose his running mate Filling a key role like that, or any role for a team, can be difficult. You can't risk selecting the wrong person. You need to find the right person for the job. 
So what's the fastest, easiest way to do that when it comes to hiring for your business? Our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Kamala. ZipRecruiter does the work for you. First, ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply to your job, so you get qualified candidates fast. It's so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. I can't even get someone to buy my table off Craigslist that fast. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Yes, I said that. Free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Kamala. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash K-A-M-A-L-A. I'm going to say it one more time. ZipRecruiter.com slash Kamala. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We get support from HelloFresh. You can get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Look, I'm not trying to leave my house. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store, and they make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. Since they deliver pre-portioned ingredients, you're not overbuying, which, let's be real, it's a burden on the planet and your wallet. So I get to eat well, and I get to eat sustainably, which I think both are a huge win. All right, so maybe you haven't cooked a lot, and cooking makes you nervous. I hear you. I see you. Stop stressing. With HelloFresh, the recipes are super easy to follow and quick to make with simple steps and pictures. We got to have the pictures to guide you along the way. And there's no huge commitment required. You can easily change your delivery days or food preferences and even skip weeks whenever you need. I mean, we all need a pizza week sometimes. Just get the pizza. I've got some meals on the way to me right now, and I cannot wait to try them. I'm on this website. I'm just drooling over these pictures. They got crispy Parmesan chicken, smothered pepper jack burgers, honey butter, barbecue pork cutlets. I mean, I have never made a cutlet in my life. <laughs> Everything sounds so good. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Kamala80 and use code Kamala80. That's K-A-M-A-L-A-80 to get a total of $80 off across five boxes, including free shipping on your first box. One more time, that's HelloFresh.com slash Kamala80. Code Kamala80. Since Kamala Harris has been a senator, some of her most memorable moments have been her taking apart government officials with incisive questions and laser focus. Skills she must have learned during those conversations with adults back home and refined during her time at Howard. I remember being in the punch out. Lita Rosario met Kamala Harris in 1983. Which is where we would go to eat um, lunch and even, you know, dinner sometimes in the evenings and hang out there sometimes do homework sometimes different fraternities and sororities would meet there i remember talking to her there and um you know kind of trying to convince her that she should come out for the debate team lita encouraged kamala to join the debate team for a few reasons not least i noticed that she had an ability to um spar with the guys in particular and she would stick to her points and she had very cogent arguments and she also had a keen sense of wit i just noticed that she had an ability to um argue um and to get her points out succinctly and quickly and to synthesize information and she had a good sense of logic um and just a very good ability to ask the right question even then kamala harris knew how to ask a good question 
and woe betide someone on the other side of that, friend or foe. It's something her husband has talked about, too, in recent weeks. Uh, he was doing an event and, and saying that, you know, when he married her, uh, like, you know, the, the family dinners with, with Maya and Kamala and everyone, like, they would they would just be, you know, bringing all the legal jargon to the table. Mina's a lawyer. Maya's husband, Tony, is a lawyer. Like, everyone's a lawyer. Doug's a lawyer. And, you know, he, he was kind of joking. He was like, yeah, there'd be some family arguments where I'd walk away and I'd be like, man, I got to do better next time. Whenever she talks about her time at Howard, Kamala Harris talks about how supportive a place it was, a place to grow in all kinds of ways, and to really understand what it meant to be Kamala Harris. One night, Jill Lewis remembers sitting and talking with Kamala. She wanted to talk a little bit about her experiences as a person of mixed heritage. And I remember her using a term to describe kind of a derogatory term that she had been called with respect to her, the Asian side of her heritage. And it was in the context of being with the West Indian side of her family. And that's when I first became acquainted with the fact that even as a black woman, but a black woman of mixed heritage, that she faced not only discrimination with respect to being black, but also being South Asian within the context of either culture, that she, she could face rejection um, in addition to from the dominant Anglo culture. So this is someone who has grown up catching three times the, the impact of her heritage, of her mutable characteristics. And she told the story really with more sort of resignation and resolve than she did with any notion that, you know, she had any lessening of her self-esteem or that she had, you know, any lessening of her resolve. Kamala graduated from Howard in 1986. Just over 30 years later, she came back to give the commencement speech and to reflect on what she learned. I promise you, you will often find that you are the only one in the room who looks like you. You will often find you are the only one in that room who has had the same experiences you've had. And you are going to feel very alone at that moment. But wherever you are, whether you're in a courtroom, a boardroom, a tech incubator, whether you are in Washington or Wichita, you must remember this. You are never alone. We are all in that room with you every single time, every single day. After graduating, Kamala applied for law school. I want to be a lawyer. I decided that at a very young age. That part wasn't surprising. She's had lawyers in her family, um, and she saw that growing up, you know, how much they helped people in the community. And so I think the field of law was something she always deeply respected throughout her life. But what she did next was... After going to Howard and graduating from Hastings Law School, I was very excited. My family gathered around. Okay, Kamala, what are you going to do in your fight for justice? She described their reaction on stage at the Chicago Ideas Week in 2013. I very proudly told them, I have decided 
I'm going to become a prosecutor. You're laughing because you have a sense of who my family is. For example, my sister went on to head the ACLU. So my family, at least, at best, found my decision a bit curious. And with some of them, I had to defend the decision like one would a thesis. The decision to become a prosecutor, though, is the different part. No one else in her family was a prosecutor. And I think this decision also speaks to the kind of political philosophy that someone like Kamala Harris has embodied her entire career. She interned at the Alameda County DA's office and wound up being a prosecutor there before eventually becoming a prosecutor at the San Francisco City Attorney's Office. And she has talked about this too, right? Where you, for movements to succeed, for society to move forward, there are kind of two parts of it, right? There are people on the outside who are applying pressure. There are people who are part of these movements, who are part of these protests, who push, who push, who push, who push our elected leaders, who push people who have power uh, to make change and to create legislation that makes change. And then at the same time, there are people at the table who make those decisions, uh, who are involved in that change process, uh, but come at it from a different perspective and a different job and a different role. And her decision to become a prosecutor was to be at that table. It was not unlike one of the many quotes Kamala would share from her mom. Systems aren't going to change themselves, so what are you going to do about it? Shamala had been there, stuffing envelopes and offering advice throughout her run for district attorney and was there to see her daughter sworn in. But a few years later, she met Kamala and Maya in a restaurant to share some bad news. A waiter brought us a basket of bread. We reviewed our menus and ordered our food, making lighthearted conversation. And then my mother took a deep breath and reached out to us both across the table. I've been diagnosed with colon cancer, she said. Cancer, my mother, please know. Shamala died in February 2009, shortly before Kamala ran for attorney general. She was 70. It was a huge huge, huge loss in her life when she lost her mom. Um, And to have done that when she just became attorney general, she hadn't even met Doug yet. You know, her mom never saw her get married. Um, It's it's something that I think, you know, she brings out a lot because of how much she talks about her mom. Uh, It's a huge part of of her motivation in her life um, and a huge part of, I mean, obviously just who she is as a person. I, I think that because... Again, it's that idea of, you know, service to others, service to others, but it's also, it's broader than that. I mean, the advice that she she most often, I would argue, repeats from her mom. There's so many quotes that she, you know, brings back and, and, and quotes from her mom, but the one that I think comes up the most often is, you know, Kamala, you may be the first to do many things, but make sure you're not the last. And this is a woman who has broken many barriers in her life and in her career, uh, and as she breaks those doors down, she's she has made it a mission to hold it open for others uh, and made it a mission to to know that other people would come behind her. And that is something that was drilled into her from her mom at a very young age. The race for attorney general, the next stage of Kamala Harris's rise, would be shaped by another tragic event. One that happened in the first four months of her time as district attorney in San Francisco. 
That's on the next episode of Kamala Next in Line. From MSNBC and Wondery, this is episode two of six of Kamala Next in Line. This is a six-part series about the making of Kamala Harris. If you want to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. I'm your host, Joy Reed. Associate producers are Chris Siegel and Allison Bailey. Production and research help from Carrie Dan and Julie Serkin. Production assistance from Hank Butler. Music supervisor, Scott Velasquez. Managing producer, Lada Pandya. Sound design by Lindsey Graham. Executive produced for MSNBC by Steve Lichtai. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. It was a Saturday in 2004, the day before Easter. Kamala Harris had been the district attorney of San Francisco for less than five months. Her first few months on the job had been received positively as she took the reins of the office that Terrence Hallinan, the man she had defeated, had run for eight years. Gary Delanus had been president of the police union for even less time when he got a call that would change everything. I don't think he told me that Isaac was dead, but he told me that Isaac had been very seriously injured, shot, and was at Mission Emergency Hospital. Isaac Espinosa was an officer in the San Francisco Police Department who had been on duty with his partner in the Bayview neighborhood that night. Gary headed over to the hospital. When I arrived out there, the, the press was already all over the place, and I saw Kevin Martin, the guy that called me, he was the secretary of the union, and I saw he was crying. So I knew at that point that Isaac was dead. He was such a popular cop. I mean, just a wonderful kid with uh, really a nice young wife, and they had just had a little baby. And At the hospital that night, a crowd began to form. And as the rumors started to basically make its way around that he was dead, uh, tons of cops started showing up at the uh, at the hospital. So uh, the people on in his station, Bayview Station, uh, there was probably 30 of them that showed up. And they, oh God, it's still tough to talk about. They wanted to see the body. They had him in a, in a room on a slab. And half his head was gone. Um, it was an extremely emotional night. Later, Gary got another call. This time from the new district attorney. I get a call from Kamala Harris. And she says, hey, uh, can we go to lunch? And I'm like, uh, well, I'm not really in the mood, but I assumed that it was to talk about the Espinosa case. So I said, okay. I said, I'll pick you up in front of the Hall of Justice, you know. Gary says they went to a place on Folsom Street that was a popular hangout for judges and cops. And it was there that they discussed the murder. Gary says Kamala told him how sorry she was. So we finished lunch and she said, will you will you join me in a press conference today? About four or five o'clock. And I said, about what? And she said, well, I want to talk about the Espinosa case. And I said, okay, well, being young and stupid, uh, 
I didn't see the setup. At the press conference, Gary stood right behind Kamala. She gets up and the first thing out of her mouth. In San Francisco, it is the will, I believe, of a majority of people that the most severe crimes be met with the most severe consequences and that life without possibility of parole is a severe consequence. In other words, she wouldn't seek the death penalty. And I'm standing there going, man, oh man, did you just get set up? Now all my members are watching TV, seeing me standing behind Kamala Harris while she's announcing she will not seek the death penalty three days before the kid's even put in the ground. Kamala Harris had promised not to seek the death penalty under any circumstances when she ran for DA. Now, the death of a police officer was putting that promise and her budding political career to the test. This week's podcast... She, and again, I can't remember the exact words, but she she looked 
in Kamala's direction, and she said something to the effect of, make no mistake about it, this is a death penalty case. And all of a sudden, you got like a thousand cops stand up in the church and give her a standing ovation. It was it was bizarre. So you could tell that Kamala was, was not at all pleased with that turn of events. Gary says he knew Dianne Feinstein hadn't been happy with Kamala's decision to avoid seeking the death penalty. But even he didn't expect her to call Kamala out in the middle of a funeral. So, you know, I wasn't going to talk about the death penalty in my eulogy. So all of a sudden I started scribbling notes saying, man, I better say something. <laughs> so I got up and I gave a great eulogy, I thought, about honoring Isaac. And then I, at the end of my speech, I said that um, uh, all we're asking for is is the appropriate punishment for someone that murdered a San Francisco police officer. And that punishment is the death penalty. When Kamala walked out of that church, you could see that she was hot. She was pissed off, man. These very public calls for the death penalty put Kamala on the defensive. I have been very clear about this case. And in this case, I have reviewed the facts. I've reviewed the laws and have made a decision. Uh, that was a decision arrived at through not only a process of reviewing all of those things, but through a, a collective process of consultation with, with people in my office. This was not a knee-jerk reaction. This was not simply a campaign pledge, therefore it shall be. This, the decision in this case was a well-thought-out decision, which was well within the discretion of an elected district attorney in the state of California. There were calls to have the case taken away from Kamala and reassigned to the California Attorney General. But that never happened. Kamala's office went on to prosecute Espinoza's killer. And on April 20, 2007, 23-year-old David Hill would be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Kamala's handling of the Espinoza case was a double-edged sword. It created some enemies for her particularly among law enforcement. But it also got her a lot of attention. She was, after all, a politician who had stood by her word. Brian Brokaw first met Kamala Harris at a fundraising event in 2004. You know, uh, a lot of cheese and crackers and, and usually a white and a red. Um, and, if, and if you want liquor, you got to pay for that yourself. Brian was 23 years old at the time. He came from a political family and had been involved in John Kerry's presidential campaign in California. I went to a fundraiser for a candidate for U.S. Senate from the state of Illinois who was raising money in San Francisco. And the host of the event was the newly elected district attorney of San Francisco, Kamala Harris, and the candidate was state senator Barack Obama. Brian had brought a disposable camera along that night. And when he got his chance... He got a picture with Obama. Uh, you know, I, I don't typically ask politicians to pose for photographs. In fact, I can think of very few instances I've ever done that. So I think it was actually just somewhat, I don't know, maybe I sensed that he was going to be big one day. And I'm sure glad I actually did because it's you know, a pretty cool memory to have. I'm glad I actually had the, the, the nerve to, to ask for it and didn't feel too cool like I, like I do now. He had the same feeling about Kamala Harris. But she just has this gravitas and this presence um, when, you know, you're in the same room as her that is um, 
It's a very commanding presence. It can be intimidating. Brian kept tabs on Kamala during her time as San Francisco DA. Her life story was just very interesting to me. She's somebody who didn't look like her predecessors. Um, and, and really, that's been the story for her career. I mean, she's somebody who's kind of been the first in almost every job she's had. When Barack Obama became president in 2008, Brian, like many others, believed Harris would join the Obama administration. But she had other plans. Let me ask you directly. Are there talks underway now between you and the Obama transition team with respect to a position in the administration? Um, everyone is quite clear that I intend to run for attorney general. Does that mean no? That means that my path is um, clear. I have this morning signed documents stating my intention to run for Attorney General in the state of California. Kamala had been San Francisco's district attorney for about six years, and her statewide reputation had grown. Now, she was ready to take the next step and run for California Attorney General. If she was to win, she would become the first woman and first black person to hold that office. With about 10 months to go until election day, Brian Brokaw's phone rang. So I got a call from a guy named Ace Smith. Ace was calling about a job. Ace was somebody I had known from previous campaigns that I had been involved with. And he's a, a legendary figure in, in California political world. Ace was advising Kamala Harris for her California attorney general run. He asked Brian if he would be interested in the job of campaign manager. It wasn't a job I was seeking. I uh, decided, you know, she was somebody that I should at least uh, interview with. And, you know, if it worked out, well, then I'd make a decision. Um, and if not, I at least got to meet her. So Brian went to San Francisco for the job interview. I had printed out, you know, stacks and stacks of news articles about her. And I had done all this research. And, you know, I remember gaming out every possible question that I could, uh, you know, envision. And so I showed up at this old, you know, uh, very old school San Francisco office and go into a conference room and uh, it was a small table. She was there. Ace was there. A guy named Mark Buell, who was her finance chair, was in the room. Um, and a guy named Chris Cunney, who time he was the chief of investigations in the san francisco da's office needless to say the questions were tough if you've watched kamala grilling witnesses during the senate hearings maybe you have an idea of what this was like for brian i mean sweaty palms and 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 sweaty everything else she is somebody who um, is incredibly skilled at the art of asking questions so yeah it was very intimidating there were definitely were not, uh, you know, pleasantries and, you know, it was a uh, very serious interview. There were very logical questions. You know, why do you want this job? What do you think it takes to win? What's your experience? You know, at the time, my resume contained more electoral losses than victories. <laughs> so I think I probably had to explain a little bit um, about, you know, the work I had done. And At one point, someone asked Brian if he was detail-oriented. Well, I mean, the only obvious answer, which was, of course, details matter. Um, you know, the truth was I was probably 
embellishing a little bit, but I learned pretty quickly that I better up my level of attention to detail from that point on. The interview lasted about an hour. And then I left and the, the next candidate was, you know, in the waiting room where I had just been before. So I wasn't sure if I actually was going to get the job, but I did. And Kamala meant business. After I got the job, we instituted a, a 9 a.m. check-in every morning where she would call me and she almost always had a list of five or six questions. You know, where are we with this issue? Did you call back so-and-so? Did you call back so-and-so? And like my stomach would start to hurt at about 8.57 every day in anticipation of, of that call coming in because I knew I better have my stuff together or else uh, it wasn't going to be a good call. And then it was off to the races. You know, I've got the widest range of experience in this race, having both been in business, having worked with law enforcement extensively. I went after the health insurance companies when they canceled uh, the policies illegally after of, of policyholders actually got gravely ill. I won a $20 million settlement, and I got people back to their insurance. I personally prosecuted homicide cases. You know, some of the worst cases that you can imagine. I am the only candidate who's made a commitment to never run for governor. Six or seven Democrats ran in the primary, including three who were state assembly members. She was running against, in a very crowded primary, where the uh, a lot of the institutional players, you know, meaning you know, organized labor and a lot of elected officials and others had long-standing relationships with the uh, politicians who were in Sacramento. Pamela, ultimately, you know, as we got closer to the primary, was leading in the polls, uh, but it was never enough of a margin to ever feel comfortable. Uh, and because she was in the lead, all of our opponents were coming at her. Still, on June 8, 2010, she won the Democratic primary with 33% of the vote. So I stand here before you, my dear family and friends and California, and I do humbly accept the Democratic... after the primary immediately confirmed that we were underdogs. Her opponent was the Republican district attorney from Los Angeles, Steve Poop. We knew immediately that uh, it was going to be an uphill battle for us because he was somebody that really had fit the mold of what AGs in our state had looked like, frankly. We get support from Purple. Throw some bedding on a bunch of different mattresses, and sure, they'll all look alike. The same goes for pillows. 